HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's show is being brought to you by Bob's Red Mill, believers in good food for all. Learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. This show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the great fortune of learning from on a regular basis. On today's show, we welcome Stephen Zatterfield, a food writer, publisher, multimedia producer. He's the founder of Whetstone Magazine, quarterly print publication on food origin and culture. In today's episode, we'll learn what being a multimedia producer means in today's multifaceted food world, We'll talk about the sensitive topic of cultural appropriation, and we'll find out what Stephen's Julia moment is. Stay tuned to learn more about what is a Julia moment. We'll be right back. In our first segment on Inside Julia's Kitchen, we launched the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. She was a pioneer, not just as a cookbook writer or on TV, but in sounding the alarm that the industrialization of food may not be the best way to go. At the height of the mechanization of food preparation and explosion in convenience foods, Julia went the other direction, emphasizing the need to understand where the things we eat and drink come from. This was how Julia was an early leader in today's food revolution. And while she didn't use the buzzwords of local or locavore, the principles she advocated were really similar. The quest to know who makes your food and to what standards completely preoccupied Julia. She was not only on a mission to figure this out, she made it her mission to get everyone else to join her quest. This brings us full circle to today's guest, who, as far as I can tell, is on a very similar mission. I'm pleased to welcome Stephen Satterfield, who will share his passion for local food communities and about food origin and culture. 
It's the kind of knowledge Julia really valued and which the foundation continues to seek to share, just as Julia did before. Welcome to the podcast, Stephen. Hi there. Thanks for having me. So we were lucky enough to be introduced to you and your writing when you were the food writing fellow at Civil Eats through a program the foundation helped fund with the Culinary Trust. Let's start with what you do, as it seems to me it's a very 21st century version of how Julia started out. So, so tell us more about what being a multimedia producer, what that means. Um, <clears throat> well, I think it means um, creating media that is appropriate for 21st century. Uh, so mostly that ends up being um, stuff for your phones, for the internet, um, that can be distributed uh, in just a matter of seconds with the press of a button. So it's still, I think, rooted in the fundamentals of storytelling and journalism, but the, the tools that we get to use to do it just look a bit different. And when you cover multimedia, is your focus singularly food, or you look at sort of a broader topic, or how do you kind of define your rubric? Um, I focus on food, um, but the wonderful thing about food, as you well know, is that uh, it's not a monolithic topic. And so by choosing to focus your energy and attention on food, what you're actually saying is I choose focus my energy and attention on everything. Um, because with food, there are conversations and stories to be told around agriculture, politics, history, tradition, geography, culture. Um, it's really an endless font of, of stories and wisdom. Um, so even though I focus on covering food, um, within that I could spend an entire lifetime and never really scratch the surface of all there is to offer. Well, that's great. Like, as food is being the staff of life, it means that ultimately food is is touching upon every aspect of, of culture, really. Absolutely, yeah. Well, I think that that's actually a perfect segue into telling us more about Whetstone Magazine and its mission, because because I think that's broadly the the subject matter that you're you're uh, pursuing. Yeah. Um, so, Whetstone is a uh, publication I founded. Um, it's been almost two years in the making, but uh, we just released our second edition. It is a magazine on food origins and culture. So that is to say, uh, as you alluded to earlier, where the things we eat and drink come from. Um, and so the magazine itself is comprised of stories from over a dozen countries. Uh, we have in this second edition over 20 creative contributors, writers, illustrators, photographers, etc. And um, we really explore questions around origin uh, with a particular interest on uh, indigenous foodways and cultures. Yeah, I had a chance to look through it, and it, it's a really amazing um, coverage of kind of really well below the surface of what food is. And I mean, it has beautiful photography, but it's it's not food porn. It's very much about the issues behind where things come from, as you said, food origins and the cultures that that actually um, create food because food food is never created in a vacuum. It's always a reflection of um, who the makers are and where they are, would you say? Yeah, I think that's true, um, at least in this modern world. 
um, obviously, you know, there are instances in which food um, is part of our natural landscape, which we see sometimes in foraging. Um, but in terms of a, a food system uh, or looking at food as uh, a means of feeding the country or many countries rather, uh, and, and sort of, um, I guess, interrogating how that all works and how it has worked over time uh, is really what we, we tend to focus on. So uh, I love the the interplay between food and nature and food that is naturally occurring in nature. Um, but for the most part, I think what we're trying to do is take things that feel really familiar and rudimentary, like coffee or wine and chocolate, um, and then work all the way back to not just, you know, decades or centuries ago even, but really millennia ago, thousands and thousands of years of agriculture and human training and uh, soil and uh, genetic labs in some cases. And and, uh, that progression is really what has gotten us to where we are today, which is so far away from any real comprehension uh, about, you know, what it is that we're actually eating. Well, I really loved and appreciated your your article about the origins of of wine and winemaking and going back to the Republic of Georgia, because I my brother in law lived, he lives in Ukraine now, but he's lived in Russia and has been to the Caucasus. And one of the first meals I remember eating in Moscow was actually in a Georgian restaurant because Georgian restaurants were the only places you could kind of get a decent meal after the fall of the Soviet Union. But I also in listening to what you were just saying and reading the article, I think one of the things you're looking to explore or starting to explore is there's a lot of messages that we've been told through not necessarily propaganda, but through cultural promotion, for instance, that all good wine is French and that you're looking to kind of explore. Well, is that really true? Is the messages that have been ingrained, how accurate are they or are they representation of some kind of moment that may not be 100 percent accurate? Um, messages as it relates to appropriation? Well, I, I was thinking just about, I thought you were kind of exploring that, having been a sommelier, that the teaching of modern wine appreciation and wine knowledge is very based on the French wine industry, which almost makes you believe that French wine started in France, which isn't exactly true. And I felt like you're not necessarily trying to dispel myths, but you're trying to provide the context and information that go beyond assumptions, I guess. 100%. Yeah, we're trying to expand the mythology. Um, so, and wine for, so I was formally trained in wine. It was the first job I ever had was, first real job was as a sommelier. Um, and I was living and studying in the Willamette Valley of Oregon, which is a tremendous part of the world for wine lovers. Um, so it was an amazing education for me. But one of the things that I was confronted with after years of studying wine is uh, how small it was making the world seem for me because um, wine education is um, in many ways about um, geography and the geography of Europe, uh, especially in France, has been broken down to a number of very important uh, vineyards on certain slopes and hillsides and elevations and aspects. Um, and so even though we talk about these regions um, in more monolithic terms, um, like Burgundy or Bordeaux, um, when you start to really study wine, 
what you're doing is taking a much more granular approach. Um, and so you're being asked to remember uh, these specific vineyards and hillsides. And when you actually go to these places, you realize, oh, these are you know fairly modest-looking pieces of land. They're not especially large. Um, I mean, you could drive all over Burgundy, you know, in, in just like a couple hours. So mm. um, I think part of what I was frustrated by is that I knew the world of wine to be much older and larger uh, and really compelling than these um, vineyards or the same narratives that were being presented uh, in my in my education. So um, Georgia came to represent for me, um, you know, kind of the, the essence of everything that was possible, but also um, inadequate about the kind of wine education that I was getting. Uh, the possibility ensued from the the knowledge that the very first place in the world for wine um, was the Republic of Georgia. I mean, now Republic of Georgia. Um, but essentially, you know, I mean, this is in the early 2000s. I had never had wine from Georgia. I wasn't familiar with producers from Georgia. Um, and, you know, over time, as I started to learn more about wine and learn more about the really broad history of wine all over the world, um, it really changed my relationship with it and the ways in which I wanted to uh, interact with wine as a medium for something. Well, and I, I think that approach, and, and you kind of almost said it before, which is not necessarily that your goal with Whetstone is like dispel myths, but it's to expand the, the make a bigger tent basically for people's knowledge of wine. Like you were saying, you felt like yours had been narrowed down to key award winning regions in France. And you thought, well, there, there's more to it than that. It, it, is that kind of a good way of saying what you're trying to pursue with, with Whetstone? Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, um, you know, what's the point of memorizing these tiny hillsides when there's an entire uh, universe of winemaking? Um, and again, it's no, I, mean, I still drink plenty of wine from France. In fact, most of the wine I drink is still from France. Um, but, you know, I realized that um, because of the way that, well, capitalism and consumerism and commercialism works, um, it's no different in the alcohol business. Um, you know, people are only going to bring in wines that they think that they can sell. Uh, and on a larger scale, um, you know, people aren't going to bring in wines that uh, don't scale. In other words, that they don't have control over a steady supply chain to blanket the entirety of Northern America. Um, so that really eliminates a lot of small artisan boutique producers. Um, and again, on the other end of the spectrum, those producers really rely on uh, the careful attention and knowledge of importers who really understand what they're doing, bring those wines into their portfolio, and then really go out and hand sell them to just a few accounts. So when you look at the, um, the systems of moving around alcohol and the bureaucracy and the inherent capitalism, um, it's sort of unsurprising uh, that we have seen so few wines um, over the years, but uh, also in this age of technology, information moves really fast. People are traveling. There's a new appetite, interest, curiosity in all things eating and drinking. Um, and so I think the marketplace for wine is starting to reflect this exciting time that we're in. 
Yeah, no, that's interesting because I spend a lot of time um, both in the States and, and more time more and more in Europe and in London. And I noticed that well, the great thing about when you're in London, for instance, is French wine is very affordable. It's nowhere near as expensive in the States. And that speaks to the supply chains that you're talking about. And California wine, oh my, even Oregon wine, ridiculously expensive. I would never pay that here because I know that it doesn't cost that much in the States. And and then the, the flip side is true. And I think that you also see that reflection of the global supply chain when you change sort of where you're based. And But then inherently, if you're lucky enough, like I am to be able to do that, it starts to sort of expand your your um, perceptions of these different maybe marketplace artificialities. Yeah, 100%. I mean, my uh, one of my fondest memories um, in France is being in the south of France, um, near the, right on the coast, uh, in Bengal, which is a tiny wine-growing region, um, but sort of French Riviera, and uh, going to the grocery stores there, and seeing walls of walls of rosé, I mean, like, you know, 20 <laughs> feet long and 10 feet tall walls, just, you know, you can't even reach the, the top of these things. And they're pricing out at, like, $5 U.S. a bottle. And they're all different hues and, you know, roughly packaged and labels that I would never see again outside of the village. Um, you know, at a time where rosé is, like, the most popular category for wine in the U.S., it's just really funny to go to France and be reminded that, oh, yeah, this started off as a really uh, common and, and not very celebrated thing. But, yeah, you're, uh, you're exactly right. The, the proximity certainly has a, a lot to say in terms of pricing and availability. So I wanted, I wanted to mention, because I admire so much about what you're doing with Whetstone for, for a couple of reasons. One, at the foundation, we feel really strongly about promoting food writers in a time where the whole there's a kind of, um, let's call it fragmentation of the professional journalism and professional food writing world. So it's sort of the bar has been lowered in terms of egalitarianism, in terms of access to an audience and being able to publish more cheaply. But at the same time, the bar has also been lowered in terms of training. And so I delight in the ambition that you have for Whetstone at a time where, I mean, these are not direct comparables. I think there's a certain uniqueness to what you're doing. But in terms of higherbrow publications for those who are interested in not just food pictures but or recipes, but in the, the food origin and culture stories that Savor has done for years and that Gastronomica used to do, but both of those publications have been you know, plagued, I guess, would be the right word. So what, 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 where was your passion for having specifically something that is in print and going into um, an aspect of the, the food and food writing world that's been really challenged lately? <laughs> that's a good question. It's many people's favorite question, um, rightfully so. Uh, media and specifically print is a very tough way to make a dollar. Um so I think going into it, uh, you know, making a dollar was part of the calculus, but not the entirety of it. Um, so our um, aim with Whetstone is to uh, simply create more media. And starting off with a print magazine, uh, we felt would be probably one of the most challenging mediums for us. I had not uh, previously published print. 
Uh, I have edited plenty of videos and podcasts and uh, done editorial writing and, um, you know, have some experience with producing in other mediums, um, but not print publishing. And so I think part of what our uh, team of editors and contributors who were uh, engaged from the onset with this project, we really felt if we could come to market with a print magazine that really uh, presented our point of view in a way that felt original and authentic and um, beautiful, that uh, we could use the magazine itself as a beginning point for a larger and longer conversation. Um, so I would say, you know, regarding an outfit like Savoir, um, you know, there would be no Whetstone magazine without Savoir magazine. Uh, I grew up reading Savoir. I was completely taken by all of their chronicles of food and travel. Um, I mean, to this day, some of my favorite uh, pieces ever on food and travel have come from Savoir magazine. But um, the reality is that they're playing a very different game than we are. Um, <clears throat> you know, again, we, our, our mission for doing this um, is not the same as Savoir magazine's mission for, for being in the media business. Um, you know, we don't share, I don't think, the same uh, ambitions. We're not beholden to the same owners or investors. And while we might one day need to take on uh, capital to, to grow the business or to really expand the kinds of stories and the volume of stories that we can tell, um, I think that there are some things about, you know, what we see in t- with magazines that feel very two-dimensional and that feel of another era, um, which is in part, I think, why you are seeing some consolidation, um, both with local newspapers and print publications. Um, there's been an inability to sort of reimagine and recapture um, what the print publication can do in 2017. Um, and again, part of that is due to the, the economic realities of trying to to run the publication. Um, but uh, also, I think part of it is people just kind of taking their eye off of the ball in terms of what people are hungry for, no pun intended, um, and what people are, are able to um, consume, you know, what people can have an appetite for and can really take on. I think there's been some coddling or some distancing between the publisher and, um, and audiences and what people really uh, are after. And um, I feel that, you know, us being closer to the ground, we really feel like we have a better sense of that and we, we hear that point of view affirmed uh, in the people who are consuming the media that we're making. Well, no, that that does resonate with me. It kind of goes back to what I was saying about a 20, 21st century version. And I think what you're kind of saying is Savoir and maybe even Lucky Peach's demise was a little too routed or rooted in a old media kind of business model. And it sounds to me like what you're trying to do is create Whetstone in an approach and with a basis and a business plan that, that isn't based on traditional media, even though it's designed to be print. Yeah. I mean, the the truth is, you know, the more I've been looking at media, um, the more, I mean, the more straightforward the business of media seems to me. Everyone talks about uh, disruption and innovation in media. 
Um, but really, as a publisher, from where I'm sitting, I, I haven't seen any innovation in the model in 100 years, which is to say, basically, if we want to sell magazines, we either need you, the consumer, to, to buy that magazine to subsidize that cost, so we need to sell lots of them, um, or we need to sell advertising to offset those costs of paying our um, contributors and to pay for the actual product itself. Um, other than that, you know, there's interesting variations on the same idea. Um, so, you know, uh, branded content and uh, product placement and, um, you know, different mediums uh, in which the advertiser and the producers are um, collaborating. But for the most part, um, <laughs> the money's got to come from somewhere. And, and the, those two places haven't really um, seen any disruption. And so for, for me, I look at that as, um, as an opportunity because getting into this space that seemed really big and complicated and hairy and nuanced, um, you know, a couple years ago when I was first entering into it in a more formal way, um, you know, now I feel um, a bit more confident in our position and the work that we're making um, and also around some of the realities of, of how it needs to be funded. You know, I don't have um, any real, um, I'm not disillusioned about the need to take on capital uh, to further our aim or any business's aim of doing what they do better and more often. Um, scaling, I guess, is what they call that. So um, <laughs> I understand, you know, the, the need for money in media. Um, I think that we have a lot to learn in terms of um, the ways that it was deployed and um, the people who did the deployment. Um, you know, I think there are some takeaways for us there. Um, but in terms of the business of media, not the most lucrative business, to be sure. But um, it does at least feel like a business where uh, if we continue on the path we're on, um, making things that we believe in, working with a team of uh, global, very talented contributors, um, and really keeping our ear close to the ground, um, giving people the kinds of content that we don't see them being served with uh, otherwise in the market, we think there's an opportunity for us to all grow together. Um, and that's sort of what we're uh, putting our faith in, that we can continue to do this. So, so is the the goal, or at least the short term goal, to be a more um, subscriber funded, crowdsourced publication than turn over to advertise? I wasn't sure if you were saying you're sort of trying to do one or other of those models, or are you trying to do something different, or are you still figuring? Yeah. So this for the third one. Um, so we're seeing our uh, subscriptions go up, which is great. Um, but the real uh, Next step for us will be to take um, advertising revenue. Um, so luckily for for us with making the magazine, um, it really ends up being sort of a fixed cost in that, um, you know, there's only so many pages we want to print. So, you know, that's sort of a, a fixed cost. Uh, a finite number of pages means that there's a finite number of contributors. Um, so it's actually a little bit, the magazine itself to make is actually easier to, um, you know, create as a line item for the operation. Um, but actually growing audience, growing subscribers, and again, the ability to 
produce more across more different or across more platforms. Um, that's where I think we will look for for advertising partners now. Obviously, um, because of our politics and because of um, just kind of the style of the publication, um, it will be self-selecting both on our end, but also on behalf of the prospective advertiser, um, you know, what that partnership would look like. Um, but we think that there are lots of brands in the food space who are uh, well-capitalized, who are ethical, who uh, resonate with what we're doing. And, um, you know, it's up to us to find those relationships without compromising uh, the kind of work that we're making. Well, I think that's all exciting and ambitious. And uh, I certainly encourage people to, to check out Whetstone and we'll, we'll give them the, the link at the end of the podcast. So we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back to hear more from Stephen, who I'm going to um, ask to help us with the controversial topic of cultural appropriation in the food world. And if you've never heard of that, we're, we're going to fill you in. We'll be right back. Bob's Red Mill has been milling whole grains since 1978. One of the nice things about Bob's Red Mill is it's the only that I know of national supplier that's easily available for lots of interesting, hard-to-get grains and other seed products. So, you know, before Bob's Red Mill became widely available, you couldn't go get something like quinoa very easily, or you couldn't go get spelt easily in small quantities. But now you go to any one of the huge number of stores that carry Bob's Red Mill, and you can get smaller amounts of these really interesting, fun things to play with. Learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. So I've sat through my share of, I would call them, fairly heated debates about cultural appropriation in the food world. And while I think it's often a challenging topic for a lot of people or maybe an uncomfortable topic once they get into it, it's also a really important one. And it's also one that I think um, Stephen's going to share my view that many people just have a hard time getting their head around. Um, after all, people the world over have been cooking and writing about other people's and their own food traditions for, for many centuries. So, Stephen, can you help kind of bring us up to bring our audience broadly up to speed on what cultural appropriation means, particularly when you're uh, referring to it in regards to food and the food world? Sure. Um, so, I would say over the last uh, two years or so, this has been in emergent topic in the world of food, um, who gets to cook, whose food, said another way. Um, and so, uh, understandably, this has been a confusing thing for people to hear who have spent their careers learning and cooking the cuisines of other nations and other cultures. Um, and so, I think the most important thing, or the most important way to begin uh, in terms of helping people understand what the discomfort is uh, around the topic is that, first of all, anyone can cook anyone's food. Um, that's okay. Uh, but the challenge with appropriation is who gets to benefit from that preparation of said food or cuisine. And so when you look at 
um, access. Access means capital. Access means um, relationships, brick and mortar, um, proximity to opportunity. Uh, the people who have this proximity to opportunity are almost never the people who have brought forth the cuisines that are then being sold for profit without the origin or without the original um, population able to share in the financial benefits. Now, that might seem somewhat trivial, but when you read about a chef who goes to Mexico, travels around, uh, steals the intellectual property technique tradition of another culture, brings that back to uh, the U.S. Um, in, let's say, where I am in San Francisco in the Mission, uh, a historically Mexican um, and Latino neighborhood. Um, and then now you have a probably not Mexican uh, chef or restaurateur who has come into uh, an area that um, is really high in rent um, and selling food that basically had nothing to do with them um, culturally. And so the people who are of this culture, especially the people who are in this country of this culture, um, there is a, a heightened and I think justifiable sensitivity in the omission of who gets to benefit now from the proliferation of, of this cuisine. And for the many immigrants in this country um, who have grown up eating these foods and have grown up with these traditions, um, to see the media, you know, complicit in this appropriation story by saying, this chef discovered this, or guess what's been discovered, or the cuisine of the moment is this. Um, it's really jarring and gutting for people whose identities are so closely bound to these foods and really identities are of these foods and traditions to have people talking about it as if it's just been discovered. It makes people feel uh, not seen, reduced, marginalized. And on top of that, now uh, the people who are benefiting from that financially uh, are never, or I should not say never, but oftentimes not willing to share uh, in the wealth or the profitability that's been created. And I think that's really where you start to see the problem is not in cooking other people's food, but in a respectful acknowledgement on behalf of the ones who are able to profit about the um, impetus or the education that allowed them to bring that cuisine forth. I think that that's a really helpful um, contextualization of the issue. Um, I do have to ask you, because you use the word steals, and I have to say that I can think of a lot of examples where someone had cultural sensitivity, really immersed themselves in the culture, and and I'm thinking more historically now, and brought that culture and information back to their home audience, particularly in North America. And would you still say that that stealing, ver I mean, that that's a loaded term versus maybe misappropriating or not being culturally sensitive. is And that's where I think people kind of get their back up about 
is this, you know, maybe taking the issue too far? So maybe you can distinguish, because you said the view is anybody can cook somebody else's food. It's I think what you were saying is it's sort of how you handle and what respect and deference you show. But obviously, if you use the word steal, well, that that's, conveys a criminal act. Sure. Well, steal is um, a word that uh, I was, as I was thinking of it, reminded, um, you know, as I was watching a prominent chef on a PBS show who took a trip to Senegal and uh, used that exact word in describing what his plans were to bring back to his restaurant. So stealing, everyone steals. Everyone knows that uh, nothing is new or original. Great artists steal. All great works are are stolen. Um, again, the distinction is, are you going to bring back what you've just learned to serve your friends and family and curiosity? Or are you going to, to bring back what you've just learned um, to, to profit from it? And I think the people who have the ability to profit from these cuisines um, we see in the composition of restaurant ownership, it's very, very homogenous. You know, there's not a lot of diversity um, among the people who get to cook this food in a way that gives them ownership of it. And that ownership is extended by the media when we say, look who is doing what. And the person who's doing it uh, oftentimes does a very poor job of acknowledging where their, let's call it, inspiration came from and does a poor job in in sharing um, the gains made uh, with that knowledge. And it might sound radical to people, but I, I really deeply believe that there is an inherent responsibility for um, a chef who has the ability, the opportunity, the privilege to open a restaurant that's rooted in, um, you know, other cuisines, especially cuisines in which um, the, the stewards of that cuisine don't have the opportunity to be restaurateurs. There needs to be a more mindful acknowledgement of that and some sort of a, a, a gesture. Um, it could be a monetary gesture. Uh, it could be some other symbolic gesture, but some gesture that says, look, I recognize that I am privileged in this situation to uh, advance your cuisine in this way. And this is how I want to support that, support you, to honor you, your knowledge, your family, your traditions. And here's what we're going to, here's how I'm going to do that. Um, I, I think if we saw this uh, reaching backwards, this acknowledgement, um, you know, it would really assuage a lot of people's, um, you know, concerns about appropriation uh, and, and the way it plays out um, in a commercial sense. Yeah, I think that's where, and I mean, that makes a lot more sense to me. I mean, to me, that's just being culturally and in generally sensitive when you are privileged enough to be able to visit and really learn. And and oftentimes you're learning because you've been embraced by that local culture to teach you. And then you've come back to share it. That That's a wonderful thing to me in terms of 
sharing knowledge and bringing global understanding. So I think what you're saying is that if you are going to to be a cultural ambassador or think of yourself as one, you need to be sensitive to those who've enabled that knowledge. And that's a good thing. But I think what gets confusing to a lot of people, particularly people of privilege, is that sometimes it sounds like you should never do that if you're not of that culture. And then sometimes it sounds like, no, 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 it's okay to do that so long as you show respect and inclusion and even, you know, some kind of compensation for it. But it kind of, I don't know if you've heard that too, that's a very, those are two different messages, but they kind of get very intertwined, particularly when people do it very badly. But I would wager that a lot of people do it badly would do any business they're doing badly because they don't have the same value system. Yeah, I think, again, the really crucial distinction here is who gets to benefit, right? If you go to Mexico and you study under someone and you bring that back here, that's great for you. If the Mexican that you study with wanted to come learn from you or even to come show you, no, here's exactly how you do it, not what you learned over the course of a week, but if you want me to show you, let me show you, let me get on your payroll uh, as a consultant, our country does not allow that to happen. And so what ends up happening is we are... Wait, sorry, how does our country not allow that to happen? Uh, because Mexican people aren't allowed to travel freely throughout the United States. I mean, most of the people in Mexico who are the guardians of this information... Uh, don't they're not going to be allowed to come travel in the U.S. And so what ends up happening is that there is an extraction of, of intellectual knowledge, of uh, intellectual resources that are then profited on, and that there's no opportunity for anyone else to share in that profitability. That is much different than you and your significant other, taking a trip, taking some cooking classes, bringing that into your own homes and cooking, you know, the different cuisines of the world. So you're, ta you're talking about, because obviously there's plenty of, of Mex people of Mexican origin, whether they're recent immigrants or long have been in the country, who run successful businesses using their, their cuisine or roots or even versions. Or you're talking about a specific situation where someone who might be trained in food makes a specific excursion to another country and culture with the extent purpose of extracting something unique and bringing it back and profiting from it. Exactly. And, and what happens at that point in which the restaurateur begins to profit is I think where the conversation around accountability, cultural accountability uh, really ought to begin. Again, there's nothing inherently wrong about, cooking other people's food. But when you start making money and the and you start making money and you're the only one who gets to share in that value, um, and it doesn't even have to be monetary. I mean, it could be something like every single time uh, Eater or uh, any of the other prominent food media sites, like there is always an opportunity for the chef in these situations to say, before I go any further, before I say anything, I would I need to acknowledge 
this recipe came from this person and this time. And, you know, like part of the uh, appropriation conversation can also center on just proper acknowledgement. You know, I think a lot of times what's so frustrating is that it's not even that there's no shared um, wealth. It's that there is, is no acknowledgement of the fact that just the existence of the cuisine, the opportunity to be able to cook it in a brick and mortar, and then the uh, media catching on to it and so-called elevating the cuisine, it's a very, very circular and cyclical um, issue in the food world that marginalizes most um, countries of the world while celebrating and uplifting a, a few white chefs who bring those cuisines forth. Um, and so it creates, uh, especially among people of color, um, a feeling of, uh, of resentment, you know, uh, that we have not always been able to share equally in that value creation. Um, and also in that, in the moments in which, um, you know, the chefs have been given the, the platform, uh, after all of the accolades that they are not doing enough to, uh, properly, uh, direct this conversation and acknowledge the the people who have made their success possible as well. Yeah, no, I think in the examples that I've read about where people have been accused of, of doing cultural appropriation in a very wrong way, it often reflects when I step kind of away from a big picture that they're just being tone deaf. And so it's, it's just trying to have a well-rounded perspective of, of if you're taking on something that is not unique and wholly owned to you and your experience, that you have to be sensitive. And I mean, would you say that's often true in the worst examples is just someone who's just been tone deaf? Yeah, you could say tone deaf. I mean, I think that in all cases, um, privilege is really blinding. It's really hard to see. And um, you can't really be expected to see your privilege until someone has checked you on it or created an, a learning opportunity for further enlightenment. So um, it's unsurprising that people, because again, it, it, I mean, it feels benevolent as it's happening. You're inspired. You're watching what someone else is doing. And then you're saying, okay, great. I'm going to now bring that to to market, like it doesn't feel like anything malicious has happened. And I mean, in fact, you know, it's, I'm not saying that people who are doing this are themselves malicious people, the, but I think that they're, it's hard to see what, why that's bad. Um, when you are embedded in the privilege to move freely about the world, to capitalize a restaurant, uh, to get, the restaurant going to be in the press. I mean, that already says so much about, you know, that individual, um, and what their, their relative privilege looks like. And so, uh, again, it's unsurprising, I think for, for me and, um, for a lot of people that it would be hard for chefs or, uh, people who find themselves in this situation to, to be at fault. I mean, that's sort of asking a lot of them, um, so part of why this is such a, a difficult conversation for people is because it doesn't feel uh, inherently as if there is any malice or, or bad intent. Um, but there's still a, a lot of harm 
um, that's felt. And I think just even, you know, for me more broadly as a, uh, food lover and, and food and culture, um, observer and, and, uh, media maker, you know, we would all be so much better off if we were able to open up the channels of communication around these different inspirations all over the world. If we were able to properly share knowledge and credit, that would create a richer um, fabric for us as food lovers to, to learn from and to uplift people and to support people in other ways. You know, it doesn't need to be necessarily incumbent on the chef writing a check, uh, sending money back to some, you know, remote village that they visited years ago. But by keeping um, the narrative of, uh, you know, the people um, who might not otherwise end up in the paper, in the papers, then I think that that is a very powerful way um, to always reframe the conversation around access and privilege and opportunity as it relates to uh, appropriation of food. Well, th- th- that's incredibly helpful, and it, to me, it's a very stimulating and important and challenging subject. And I, sort of bringing you back to the Julia context, I think no no one could agree more that privilege is blinding because in Julia's life, she had a privileged upbringing and didn't feel liberated until she was uh, exposed to other points of view and cultures, and that's exactly the goal of foundation. And I think leaving on the message of privilege being blinding is is a really good if you do come from whatever privileged background being reminded that that's a contributing factor is really helpful so we're going to take a break and when we come back we're going to lighten things up and steven is going to reveal his personal julia moment stay with us Like what you hear? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. With fresh programming every week, we've got something for everyone. Trying to start your own food business? Concerned about where your food comes from? Looking for the best wine or beer to bring to a party? Find our shows on iTunes or Stitcher, or head to heritageradionetwork.org to listen live and subscribe to our newsletter. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we segue into our last segment, which we call the Julia moment. Here's when we asked our guests to share their favorite Julia memory moment or how she has inspired them in their career. Stephen, what's your Julia moment? Uh, my Julia moment is, I think, the same as so many Julia moments, uh, which is to say that my entire uh, culinary career could be attributed to Julia. Um, I love her so much. When I was in high school, this is one of my earliest and most formative food memories. Um, I would uh, leave school early and uh, rush to my friend's house who lived closest to school, and we would watch PBS reruns of Julia and Jacques, which came on every day uh, at, at 
three o'clock. And so um, after watching Julian Jock for months, um, one day I saw them make the most spectacular looking souffle. Um, and when it was time for, uh, when the souffle had been pulled out of the oven, Julia took two spoons, put them back to back, stabbed it right in the middle of the souffle and then ripped it apart so that a whole pile or stream of, of steam and, uh, had come right from the center of the souffle. And immediately after the episode was over, uh, went to the grocery store and started um, uh, make collecting all the ingredients for the souffle and came back home. And three hours later, because we didn't really know what we were doing, um, we had our own souffle, which didn't, of course, rise in the same way that Julia's did. Um, but just that whole process of uh, inspiration and of, um, you know, just the imagination and the creativity and watching the joy on her face uh, when she crammed those two spoons in the center of that souffle um, was so palpable. And it's really hard for that, uh, you know, that kind of enthusiasm to be fabricated. I think, I mean, mm. just look at her. And how old were you when you were do approximately? Oh, I was 17. Um, oh, seven. Okay. Yes. But that's still pretty amazing. And and did the souffle, I bet the souffle, even if it didn't rise or look as beautiful as Julia's, it still tasted pretty good. It was so good. It was so good. And I and in that deliciousness, I feel I was able to, you know, have more of an understanding about uh, her unbridled enthusiasm in the kitchen. It, you know, it sort of made more sense to me. So, um, yeah, that's my Julia moment. Um, she's forever my, my favorite... Um, television uh, cook, but also obviously uh, author as well. Well, no, I love that because I think that it really speaks to that, that special, and we call it the, the, the Julia magic and the, or the power of Julia, and that she had that power to inspire a 17-year-old to, to not only watch and learn and be excited about food, but literally run out to the store and make one of the more challenging dishes you could ever make in your life. So thank you. That, that That's I found with doing these Julia moments is every time they're just really touching and they're both personal and profound. So thank you very much. Yeah, of course. Thank you for, uh, for letting me share. And I think um, the more people that I talk to um, in the trade, I mean, I can't tell you how many times I will talk about my PBS Julia moment and then someone else also will come forward with their own version of the exact same story. So well, we love that, and that will hopefully keep us in keep us in episodes for for quite a long time. So, there we're going to wrap up. Thanks everyone for listening. Let us know what you think about today's show. You can reach us via email or even send us a voice memo to contact at joyachildfoundation.org. Please like us on Facebook. Search at Julia Child. You can follow the foundation on Twitter at Julia Child JCF, and I'm at T Shulkin T S C H U L K I N. We're also on Instagram. Search Julia Child Foundation, all one word. So to learn more about Stephen's publication, go to whetstonemagazine.com. Whetstone is W-H-E-T-S-T-O-N-E, and the new issue is available now. You can follow Stephen on social media. Just search at I Saw Stephen. He's S-T-E-P-H-E-N on Facebook, Twitter, and or Instagram. And thanks to WGBH for the Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Veltorni. If you like what you've been hearing, please subscribe. 
you like the podcast, please give us a review as that really helps new listeners discover us. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.